True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. This one guy shouted, run away, he's mad. And then Jock stopped and he looked back. And I also looked back and as Jock looked down, pulled out a sword and he slipped Jock from the back. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host. Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 13, The Samurai Killer. This case was suggested by listener Natalie Volhuter on our Facebook page. Thank you for your suggestion, Natalie, and also for the information you provided which contributed to the research for this episode. This case happened in 2008, and at the time, it was voraciously reported at a national and international level. It had all the makings of a sensational crime. The killer was young, the method of killing was obscure, and spoke to a fantasy of some sort. Then came the occult allegations, and the claims that heavy metal music had incited the attack. The crime occurred within the sanctity of a school, and soon comparisons were being drawn between this attack, the Columbine School Massacre in the United States, In amongst this all, as often happens, the victims became names in an evidence pack, and the reality of exactly how many lives this crime impacted would only come to light almost a decade later. Let's get into the case of the Samurai Killer. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. On Friday the 15th of August 2008, Nick Diedrichs Technical High School in Krugersdorp held a casual day for its staff and pupils. The school is one of the oldest and most prominent in Krugersdorp and provides conventional curriculum as well as elective classes in technical, mechanical and electrical fields. The day which was intended to create a relaxed atmosphere for pupils would be the breeding ground for a horrifying attack that would occur in the following week. Of course, the true roots for events of this nature span many years before it actually occurs. But it is known that in the week before this casual Friday, 18-year-old Monet Haramsa had started having some disturbing conversations with his school friends. According to Monet, he and six other school friends had been talking about ways they could make an impression at the school so that other pupils would take notice of them. Many of the group were in matric and heading up to their final exams and perhaps they realised that soon they would leave the school and wondered how they would be remembered. It is not known who was the first to come up with the idea to launch an attack on school premises, 
but many would later say that the idea had always been Mornay's. That Friday, Mornay Haramsa arrived at school dressed in jeans and a white t-shirt. He carried with him a mask, which resembled one worn by the lead singer of one of his favourite bands. Mornay, as well as many of his friends, were fans of a popular heavy metal band, Slipknot. The band is known for changing up the masks they wear on stage with each album they release, and at the time, lead singer Corey Taylor had made a brown mask with dreadlocks on it, referred to as the maggot mask, part of his onstage persona. Monet had a replica of this mask with him on that day. It is alleged that Monet had been the first to ask the group of boys how they would go about committing a Columbine-style massacre at the school. He was referring to an infamous school attack, which had occurred in the United States in 1999. The attack had been widely publicised, and its shocking nature had caused the perpetrators and their actions to become almost legendary in internet folklore. The perpetrators of the Columbine School Massacre, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, were also in their last year of school and in a gun and bomb attack, killed 12 students and one teacher before taking their own lives. It was alleged that the boys had been bullied and that there was a culture of bullying acceptance at the school. In perhaps one of the first examples of the internet glorifying murderers, to the extent that a fan base formed around them, thousands of teenagers who had experienced bullying or felt undermined or targeted themselves, turned Dylan and Eric into heroes. The sad irony is that none of the victims killed in the attack were perpetrators of bullying at the school. In fact, many of them had been victims of bullying themselves. It is harsh evidence of how this massacre had been romanticised that Monet Haramsa and his friends living in a town thousands of kilometres from Columbine, and who would have only been eight or nine years old when the attacks occurred, were so familiar with the events that they discussed it in detail that Friday afternoon. Monet would later say that some of the boys had said they would use guns to commit such an attack at their own school, and from there, the conversation had morphed into something more serious at least in his opinion. Plans were made among the boys about who would use which weapon and who would contribute what. Some of the boys allegedly said that they would bring firearms from home, while another boy claimed that he would build a bomb over the weekend. Mornay had said that he would bring his three slipknot masks and three swords, and the boys who didn't have access to weapons could make use of his masks and swords in the attack. The attack was scheduled for Monday the 18th of August. While little is known about the specifics of the plan, whether there were named victims or a set manner in which it was to be carried out, cell phone records from Mornay and the other boys would show that they'd continued the conversation about the attack over the weekend by text message. It's alleged that Mornay used the words massacre and bloodbath to describe the upcoming event.
Mornay sent messages on a few occasions to the boy who was supposed to be building the bomb, and he had confirmed that he was on track and would bring the device to school on Monday. Something else happened that Friday, before the attack, which should have sent major alarm bells ringing. The matric pupils were having a discussion with teachers about their future plans and what they would be doing after they matriculated. The principal of the school would later say that Monet's answers in the session had frightened the teachers and that they had planned to call him in on the Monday to talk to him about it. Monet had told his teachers that he wasn't prepared for his upcoming exams and that he didn't think his parents had much faith in him. Mornay then said that it would probably be better if he was in jail because it would be better to be a bum in jail than a bum on the street. A child who expresses no hope for the future is most certainly very concerning. In most cases, this would make one concerned about possible self-harm. But in this case, Mornay had directly referenced committing a crime, showing that he intended to harm others in some way as there are no victimless crimes. It would be simplistic to blame the school over this one incident, as it's not as though they could stop him from coming to school over it. I do think a call to his parents that very day would have been well-placed, but it's easy to say what should have been done in hindsight. Later on, though, it would become very clear that this was not the first warning sign of maladjusted behaviour from Monet, and there had certainly been cause for concern for some time. We don't know how serious the other boys were about this plan, or whether they considered it to be just a fantasy. But these seven boys spent an entire weekend with their families, all the while plotting an armed attack on their school on the Monday. And not a single parent or family member noticed anything strange. The one kid was allegedly building a bomb in his house, and no one thought that was odd. Did none of these boys feel the weight of this idea pressing down so heavily on them that they felt the need to share it with someone? Or maybe they did, and that person thought it was a ridiculous teenage fantasy, or a matric prank of some sort. To be fair, those of you who've parented teenagers, or even vaguely recall being a teenager, know that the very nature of teen years can bring about a breeding ground for secrecy. Teenagers are claiming their privacy, drawing a line in the sand between their family lives and their personal lives. Many insist that their parents trust them enough to allow them to keep their bedroom doors closed. So, although it's certainly not the fault of any of those families for not having known, it is a really scary thought that this could be going on in your own house and you would have no idea. On Monday the 18th of August, 2008, Monet Haramsa left home early. His mother would later say she thought this was strange because she always dropped Monet and his younger brother who attended the same school, off in the mornings and collected them in the afternoons. On this morning, however, Monet had made his own way to school. He was dressed in his school uniform, but he also had a large red bag with him. In the bag were three swords, 
one small knife, a sword belt, three masks, knee guards, elbow guards, gloves, and black paint. The masks included the same mask that Monet had worn to school on the Friday, another which looked like a gas mask, and a clown mask, all three worn by different members of Slipknot. It would later be discovered that Monet's parents had purchased the clown mask for him that weekend from a costume shop in Krugersdorp. When he arrived at school, he saw one of the boys with whom he'd plotted the attack. The boy asked him why he had the swords with him, and Monet responded that it was for their plan. He and the other boy then went into a nearby toilet, and they were joined several minutes later by the rest of the group. For a few minutes, the boys tested the weapons, with Monet's friend putting on one of the masks and arming himself with a sword. The bomb-making friend handed Monet his homemade device, warning him not to pull the string because it would go off. Strangely, Monet didn't heed the warning and almost immediately pulled the string. One of the other boys grabbed the device and threw it out the door. When it didn't go off, Monet realised the device hadn't been real. Monet says that he was under the impression that they were all starting to get ready for their attack. When the school bell rang, his friends all removed the masks, put down the weapons and left the bathroom to attend the school assembly scheduled for that morning. Monet was left alone, suddenly realising that he had been the only one that had been serious about the plan. Instead of abandoning the plan and moving into assembly with his friends, he suited up, donning the gloves, elbow and knee guards, and applying the black face paints. He pulled on the same maggot mask he had worn on Friday and put a belt around his waist. Into the back of this belt, he slid the two smaller swords and then he armed himself with the largest samurai sword and left the toilets. Some of the boys would later say that they had often seen Monet sharpening his swords at home. Other reports claimed that the first time he sharpened them was that weekend in preparation for the attack. Whichever one is true, we know for sure that the sword Monet held in his hand was not the dull decorative piece that his father had purchased for him a few years before. Monet had transformed it into a razor-sharp tool of death. Many students reported that as they were all moving toward the assembly area that morning, they had seen Monet come out of the toilets and laughed at him, thinking it was a prank of some sort. Sadly, Monet was very serious about his intentions. Sixteen-year-old Jacques Pretorius was two grades below Monet. The two didn't know each other, but their paths crossed that morning. One of the last things Jacques Pretorius would have heard was Monet Haramsa calling out to a group of passing matric girls, saying, Hey, you want to see something cool? Monet Haramsa drew back his sword and slashed the neck of Jacques Pretorius. Jacques collapsed and blood gushed from his neck. Stunned friends attempted to close the wound with their hands to no avail. Monet had severed Jacques's carotid artery, 
and the young boy bled out and died within minutes. Jacques' best friend had been walking with him when Monet had attacked. He later said that at first he thought it was a joke, but then he saw the blood bubbling out of Jacques' neck. He tried to keep Jacques awake and keep him talking, but he could see in his eyes that it was too late. The young man watched his best friend die. Chaos erupted in the hallways of Nick Diedrich's technical high school. Pupils screamed and ran for their lives, and their fellow learner lay dying in a pool of blood. Someone yelled, Watch out, he's lost it! While another voice shouted for someone to tackle Mornay because he'd lost his mind. Mornay continued on down the hallway, seemingly unperturbed. 17-year-old Stefan Boas was Mornay's next victim. He was struck in the back of his head and on his leg. The deep head wound would require emergency surgery to save his life. Thankfully, he survived. The unsung heroes of this tale were two of the school's groundsmen, Sam Manamela and Joseph Korisang. The men saw Monet attacking pupils with the sword, and instead of running away to safety, they ran toward Monet and attempted to tackle him to the ground. Sam received a deep cut on his arm, and Joseph's ear was almost severed from his head as Monet lashed out at them. It is unknown what really caused Monet to stop this rampage, but I suspect that he may have seen his younger brother, as he reportedly threw the sword into the ground and sat on a nearby low wall. Several sources report that at this time, Monet's younger brother approached him, picked up the sword and fled with it, disarming his brother. While the terrified students scurried to safety and Monet's victims lay bleeding on the ground around him, a teacher approached him and asked him to come with him to the principal's office. Monet pulled off the mask, revealing the black paint on his face. He appeared dazed and asked teachers what had happened. Once in the principal's office, he had said that Satan had told him that if he didn't kill people by the end of the day, then he would be killed. At one stage, when asked if he realized that he had killed someone, Monet said, I killed three, didn't I? The police and ambulance were called. Jacques Pretorius was pronounced dead on the scene, and Stefan Boas, Sam Manamela, and Joseph Kordisang were stabilized on the scene and transported to hospital. Monet Haramsa was arrested without incident. This is perhaps a good time to give you a physical description of Monet Haramsa. And the word used to describe him by most people is diminutive. He is indeed shorter than most others in his age group, but he's also very thin and he has a baby face. Honestly, in my opinion, he looks like someone whose growth has been stunted somehow. There's never been any confirmation of a medical condition behind his small stature, but if I look at his mother, father and brother, none of them have the same tiny stature that he does. His appearance, of course, has absolutely no bearing on his crime, except perhaps in making it more shocking. 
the violence perpetrated by Monet would have taken a good amount of strength. Even though he sharpened the blade, it would have still taken quite a lot of force to inflict the type of injuries he did. Friends and family of Monet had said that he had fantasized about becoming a ninja for a long time. He would practice by attempting to scale walls and run on roofs. It's alleged that Monet felt that if he could become a famous ninja, then, quote, at least he would be somebody, end quote. If Monet had an interest in ninja warriors his entire life, and had done any research on ninjas or samurais, he would have likely come across the topic of tsujigiri, which is the Japanese for crossroad killing. This is a practice undertaken by ninjas in training, where they'll go to a street crossing and attack the first person they see, usually a stranger. The practice is, of course, outlawed in modern Japanese society, but it still forms part of documents relating to the training of ninja warriors. I have absolutely no idea whether Monet was aware of this, but I thought it was an interesting connection when I read about the practice while researching the ninja culture. Witnesses had reported that Monet had appeared possessed or on drugs. Many said that his pupils were very dilated, and he was behaving as though he didn't know what was going on around him. After his arrest, Monet was tested for drugs. He was clean. He was charged with one count of premeditated murder and three counts of attempted murder. As his murderer sat in jail waiting for the system to take its next steps against him, Jacques Pretorius was laid to rest the following week in Krugersdorp. A wall at Nick Diedrich's technical school became a temporary memorial with students writing messages to their fallen friend and pinning flower arrangements to the fence. Hundreds of people attended the funeral as the police investigation started to turn up evidence and people close to Mornay started to talk. The rumour mill exploded with accusations. Another pupil was arrested on the same day as Monet in connection with the attack. It was the boy who had pulled on the mask and picked up a sword in the toilet. The charges were eventually withdrawn against him, as it was determined that he had done this in an attempt to reason with Monet. The boy turned state witness. When police searched Monet Harams's bedroom, the case took a strange turn. They found what they call evidence of occult activity. Some of the items included Ouija boards, ceremonial candles and pentagrams. Satanic panic set in very quickly. Looking at photographs of Mornay's room on a documentary recently aired on television, I saw quite a few other things that weren't mentioned. There was a set of tarot cards, many cigarette lighters, rolls of packaging tape, and the so-called Ouija board was drawn by hand on a piece of cardboard with the words Ya and Nia written on it because apparently Monet only planned on contacting Afrikaans-speaking spirits. 
Police also found items related to many other different practices, besides things that could be considered paraphernalia of Satanism, including books on Wicca. Besides this paraphernalia, police also found detailed drawings of the school's floor plan as well as lists of actions to be taken during the attack, with names assigned to each role. Of course, none of these items were focused on in the public's mind, and the rumour mill decided that Mornay Haramsa was a practising Satanist, and he'd killed Jacques Pretorius as part of some devil-worshipping ritual. I think that you can tell by my tone how much this irritates me, and I'm certainly not discounting the existence of any type of Satanist activity, but it does annoy me that this became such a huge focus, because in my opinion, that starts to detract from the reality of where the responsibility lies for this crime. I'll get into this more later, and also how the satanic panic around this case ties into another case we've covered on this podcast. Monet Haramsa was sent to Stagfontein Psychiatric Hospital for a 30-day assessment period to determine whether he was fit to stand trial. Franco Fisser was the head supervisor of Stagfontein's forensic department at that time and was responsible for assessing Monet. He spoke, both in the trial and in the documentary I watched, about his experiences with Mornay Haramsa. Fisser said that he had initially been very confused about Mornay's state of mind. He said that Mornay had presented with some psychotic features, but he didn't have any of the hallmarks of a person suffering from a mental illness in which psychoses are present. Indeed, Another qualified psychologist who had done the initial assessments of him before he was transferred to Stagfontein had reported to the court that Mornay had been seeing ghosts who had called him to become a Satanist. Fisser had been so unsettled about Mornay's real state of mind that he felt uncomfortable providing a diagnosis to the court at the end of the 30 days so he had asked that the psychiatric evaluation be extended. The court granted the extension, and Monet was set to be held for another 30 days. Fisser recounts that when the extension was granted, he suddenly received a visit from Monet's mother. Lisa Haramsa, in his opinion, had been entirely subservient to her husband, Machil. It was Fisser's opinion that Lisa, up until that point, had only said what had been sanctioned by her husband. This all changed on the day she arrived in his office. Monet's mother admitted to Fissa that she had been concerned about her son's behaviour for a long time. She said that he had a history of petty theft, and he had been known to be extremely aggressive. She described her son as having what she thought could be a criminal mind. Fissa says that he realised at that moment that Monet had been faking his psychoses for the first 30 days of his assessment. When he confronted Monet, he admitted it, and eventually some semblance of the truth started to emerge.
Monet claimed that he had been bullied at school. Little was ever made of this claim, though, and his own defence attorney said that he was never instructed to attempt to use bullying as a defence, nor was any evidence of bullying placed before the court. Fisser, from a psychologist's perspective, does feel that Monet experienced bullying at school and says that he does think it impacted Monet to some extent, although the real part that it played in his crime is difficult to say. Monet's school friends said that they had never witnessed Monet being bullied. Considering his small stature, I think it's safe to say that he would have drawn some cruel remarks from other children at some time in his life. I also don't think that his friends saying that he wasn't bullied doesn't mean he wasn't. When you're a child, you don't see things from the same perspective as you would when you're an adult. And often behavior may not seem like bullying, but may be classed in a child or teenager's mind as teasing or messing around, when in fact it's actually quite hurtful to the recipient. Monet did make statements to his friends in the planning phase of the attack that this was their chance to get back at all of those who had wronged them. There are two things that don't fit here, though. Monet may have been bullied, but he was not an outcast. He had at least six close friends, and that's far more than many children have at school. The other thing that doesn't make sense here is that, just like in the Columbine massacre, none of Monet's victims had bullied him. He didn't even know Jacques' name. Stefan Boer hadn't bullied him, and the two groundsmen had probably never even spoken to him before. There was another type of bullying in Monet's life, though, and it was far closer to home. Monet admitted to Fissa that his father had, on several occasions, in his words, beaten him up. Fissa went to great lengths in his assessment to differentiate between corporal punishment, which, whether you agree with it or not, is still a very real form of discipline in some households, and a form of violence which crossed the line. From Monet's perspective, as well as some admissions from his mother, his father had definitely crossed the line on a few occasions, and this had left a deep impression on Monet. He described his father as a strict disciplinarian, and I certainly get this impression from Machiel Haramsa, just by looking at him. He's a well-built man, and has a hard face. Interestingly, though, he displayed a lot of emotion in the courtroom and cried easily. Monet's mother had also admitted to Fissa that she'd had her own struggles with mental health and had attempted to commit suicide on several occasions. She had also been hospitalized for a period after a mental breakdown. A picture emerged of a relatively difficult home life where aggression was prevalent and his parents may have been a bit too wrapped up in their own issues to give him the type of attention he needed. Monet, in fact, admitted that his crime had been a way to get attention. Monet said that he felt like a failure at everything he tried, and he was trying to make a name for himself by doing something he would be remembered for. 
Let's analyze this for a minute, because it would be easy for us to say, well, clearly he was neglected and that's why he turned to violence. But I think this runs far deeper. Whatever their shortcomings, Machil and Lisa Haramsa could not have been more attentive towards Monet during his trial. They came across as very caring parents. Now, if that was real is debatable, and whether it was a case of too little too late is also a question. But which parents have not sometimes got so wrapped up in their own stuff that they perhaps didn't give a child their undivided attention? Another question we need to ask is, what would Monet have deemed sufficient attention? Some people are far needier than others, and there is no doubt that Monet felt lacking from early in his childhood. But was this from true emotional neglect, or was it a symptom of a personality disorder of some kind? He was never diagnosed with anything, at least during that assessment. But at 18 years old, it would have likely been too early to give a definitive diagnosis anyway. I suspect that Monet's own poor self-image, wherever that originally came from, helped fuel the narrative that he had invented. He was lonely, neglected, severely bullied, and felt as though he were unworthy and had no future. But a lot of that was curated in his own mind. It's alleged that Monet locked his bedroom door, and his parents hadn't seen the room for months. If he was feeling so isolated, why isolate yourself even more by doing that? This also doesn't gel with the idea that his father was a strict disciplinarian. Why would a man who, according to his wife, has a deep need for control, allow his son to lock his bedroom door? We do have to view every single part of Monet's story with the understanding that psychologist Franco Fisser said that he was one of the most manipulative and calculating individuals that he had ever come across. In my mind, the fact that Monet spent the first 30 days of his assessment pretending to experience psychoses colours almost everything else about this case with a different hue. Firstly, where did he get the idea to do that? Was he trying to get committed to stack Fontaine rather than go to jail? Was he doing it for attention? And when did the facade start? As I mentioned, witnesses had said that they believed Monet was possessed or on drugs because he'd been behaving so oddly before and after the murders. He was all dazed and confused, asking what had happened, yet he was alert enough to know that he may have killed three people. Was all of that the beginning of this calculation to develop this ploy of the psychotic killer? And if that is true... Exactly how far does this young man's manipulation go? Monet was found fit to stand trial and aid in his own defence, and when asked to enter a plea, he pleaded guilty to all of the charges against him. The pre-sentencing hearing began, and Franco Fisser testified for the state about Monet's mental health assessment. 
He told the court that Monet had admitted to having used drugs in the months before the murders. He had not used drugs on the weekend before, which is why he tested clean on the day. He also admitted to having attempted to start a drug lab in his bedroom. Many of the witnesses that would be called attested to having seen Mornay use drugs on many occasions prior to the murder. Fisser said that he felt that Mornay had an emotional age far younger than his physical age. Fisser testified to the evidence of physical violence which had occurred in the Haramsa household and stated that Mornay had become emotional and aggressive when his father had beaten him. Monet allegedly admitted to fantasizing about bashing in his father's head, but had never attempted to fight back because his father was bigger and stronger than him. Fisser also testified that as part of his investigation into Monet's background, he'd pulled his school file. Monet had attended school in Krugersdorp his entire life, and he'd been at Nick Diedrichs for his whole high school career. The file should have been an excellent source of background information on his development, and considering his regressed emotional age, Fitzer expected to find some evidence that at least some of his teachers had picked up on this. What he found was a file filled with blank progress reports. There was nothing in the file to indicate that Mornay had ever been assessed beyond standard requirements nor was there any proof of communication with his parents. Probation officer and social worker Annette Vergier was also called to testify. The name may sound familiar to you, and for good reason. Vergier has testified in many high-profile cases, including the Oscar Pistorius trial and the Krugersdorp killers trial. Vergier's evidence is often controversial, and she's been accused on many occasions of being against prison time no matter what the crime. Let's be honest, our prisons are not a great place to be, and they're not supposed to be. But I also don't think that our prison system, or perhaps any prison, is truly set up for rehabilitation. And this has been Fakir's point in a lot of these cases. Her argument is often that if someone is a first-time offender and there are circumstances such as drug use, childhood abuse or PTSD, that prison time does not serve the offender's best chance at rehabilitation. In some cases, I'd agree with that. But Fakir has also been accused of being easily manipulated by offenders. Her recommendation in Monet's case was that he should be sent to a juvenile facility and that he should not be given a long prison sentence. She was also forced to admit that Monet had told her he had used drugs on several occasions while in prison, but she didn't feel that this was an indication that he lacked remorse for his crime. Let me be clear that I don't have an opinion on Annette Vergier. She is a highly experienced social worker and probation officer, and I'm in no position to say whether her assessment of Monet or any other offender is accurate. I do think that there's a reason she is continually called in as a witness for the defense in case after case, 
and I think that is because her views on the prison system work well as mitigating testimony. In September 2009, Mona Haramsa was sentenced to 18 years imprisonment. The judge accepted testimony that even though he was an adult in physical terms, he had a juvenile psychological disposition and therefore did not meet the requirements for the minimum life sentence for murder. He was sent to an adult jail. When the judge read out his judgment and referred to the violence Monet had experienced within his own household, Monet's father began to sob. At the end of the documentary I watched, they claimed that he would be allowed to apply for parole in 2024. But I'm not sure how they calculate that, because no non-parole period was set, and therefore he should be able to apply for parole halfway through his sentence, which would be 2018. In fact, last year an article appeared in the Krugersdorp News stating that Monet was being considered for early parole due to good behaviour. I also have it on good authority that in 2014, people close to Monet were making statements that he, quote, only has five years to go, end quote. And more recently, statements were being made that such a time is coming closer. In the Krugersdorp News article in 2018, the investigating officers, as well as psychological experts, were quoted as saying that they didn't feel Monet was ready for release. Franku Fisser stated in the documentary that if and when Monet is released, he would need to be monitored carefully and given assistance to slowly move back into society. He also stated that, in his opinion, the saying the best predictor of future behaviour is past behaviour, applies very specifically to Monet. Jacques Pretorius's mother Adele and aunt Leonie were unhappy with the sentence that Monet received, feeling it far too light for the taking of a life. When asked if she could ever forgive Monet, Adele said that she definitely couldn't at the time of the trial and she didn't know if she ever could. The parallels between this attack and the Columbine massacre are actually quite compelling. The two attackers in that case also had detailed drawings of their school, and they had a complex plan drawn out, which didn't come to fruition. They wore items designed to intimidate and shock during their crimes. The knee guards and elbow guards were items that the Columbine killers wore. It had emerged after their attack that there were also several of their friends who had heard them talking about the planned attack. They even convinced a female friend to buy them a gun. The mother of one of the killers, Sue Klebold, has become a public speaker and activist for teen mental health. She wrote a book many years after the murders, detailing her experience in the hopes that it would help other parents to see the signs in their children before it is too late. The book is called A Mother's Reckoning, and I highly recommend that any parent of a teenager read it. I tried to keep some of the things that she said in mind when I did this episode, 
because her description of the way she was treated by the public was shocking. There were a few things that I think Sue did well, though. She never once condoned her son's actions. She never said he made a mistake or it's because he was bullied. She, in fact, did not believe he was bullied. The main difference here, of course, is that Dylan Klebold committed suicide after his massacre, so Sue had no one to ask questions of. She actually says in the book that sometimes she thinks it's better that Dylan died because she has no idea how she'd be able to support him after what he did. The other side of the story is how Sue described Dylan at home. The woman who would most likely have known him best describes a kind, loving young man. He had some behaviour issues, but nothing that couldn't be considered normal for a teenager. And then he woke up one morning, packed a bag, and left the house early, just like Monet did, and massacred 13 people. The two attackers in this case filmed themselves preparing for the attack for a few weeks before. When Sue watched those videos, she said that it was like seeing a different person talking through her son's mouth. The Klebold household was not abusive. But still, Sue's son would go down in history as one of the most prolific school murderers in the United States. I'd like to spend a bit of time on the so-called Satanism aspect of this case, as well as the Slipknot connection. For a long time after the murder, much was made of the fact that Monet had worn masks like the ones members of the heavy metal band had worn, as well as the fact that he had listened to one of the band's songs entitled Wait and Bleed on the morning of the murder. Monet's case is not the first to involve the Slipknot song. In 2003, 20-year-old Jason Lamar Harris and 16-year-old Amber Rose Riley from San Bernardino, California, were convicted of killing their 22-year-old acquaintance, Terry Taylor, by stabbing him more than 20 times and then slitting his throat. The pair had claimed to be driven by a song called Disaster Piece by Slipknot, which refers to stabbing. That said, there are also about 20 other cases where other bands or musicians were mentioned in homicide cases, even you too. The one common denominator in all these cases was that the perpetrators were all either teenagers or young adults. The other thing they all had in common was that they were either suffering from some form of mental illness or they were already involved in criminal behaviour. Why do we listen to music? Well, besides maybe enjoying the beat or the way the singer's voice sounds, we listen to music because we can often relate to something in the lyrics, or at least something that we perceive to be in the lyrics. Songwriting is like most other forms of art. It's open to interpretation in its meaning. I can look at a painting and just see a house, and you might look at it and see the entrance to hell. The only thing that differs is our perspective. In my opinion... It's the same with music. Heavy metal does not make people kill other people. Choice makes people kill other people. 
mental illness does too. And sometimes, people just kill other people for absolutely no reason. Thousands of South African fans listened to Slipknot. One decided to kill other people after doing so. Monet's six friends also all listened to Slipknot. They also all wore masks. They didn't kill anyone. The lead singer of Slipknot actually commented in the media about this case. Corey Taylor said, quote, Obviously I'm disturbed by the fact that people were hurt and someone died. As far as my responsibility for that goes, it stops there, because I know our message is actually very positive. End quote. And honestly, I completely agree with him. Corey Taylor sang a song and created an on-stage persona. Corey Taylor did not kill anyone. The last thing I want to say about this is that I'm pretty sure there are a lot of killers out there that listened to country music before they killed someone too, but no one is trying to tar and feather Dolly Parton. Satanic Panic As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, there's a disturbing link in this case to another case we've covered on this podcast. It even happened in the same town. You guessed it. It's the Krugersdorp Killers. In episode 4, we covered the case of the Krugersdorp Killers, a group of people who've been referred to as a cult, although that's up for debate, calling themselves Electus Perdius. The members of this group killed 11 people between 2012 and 2016. The impetus for the killings was a falling out between the group's leader, Cecilia Stein, and a woman called Ria Grunewald. If you followed the case, you'll remember that Ria Grunewald ran the Overcomers Through Christ movement. The movement gave courses on how to avoid and escape Satanism. Well, guess what sparked the formation of this movement? That's right, Mornay Haramsa. In 2007, Overcomers Through Christ was a prayer group. When Mornay Haramsa committed this murder in 2008, the town of Krugersdorp became so panicked by the idea of Satanists in their midst that Grindelwald started designing the anti-Satanism courses. We all know by now that it was these courses that drew Grindelwald and Stain together and also eventually tore them apart, which sparked Cecilia's own murderous rage. Grunewald, of course, denied that OTC was ever hosting these courses, but many members of the group and residents of Krugersdorp have come forward to confirm that it was happening. I must tell you that when I read about this link for the first time, my mouth literally hung open. I've always believed in the concept of six degrees of separation, but who knew that would be a thing in true crime? I think that this connection also speaks to the damage that can be caused by ill-informed gossip and sometimes reporting. As I mentioned earlier, there were far more items in Monet's room that pointed to an interest in other non-traditional practices than there was satanic paraphernalia. But the word Satanist still stuck. Why? 
because Satanism makes a great headline. Monet Haramsa was not a practicing Satanist. He was dabbling in a lot of different things because he was trying to find something that set him apart. His actions had nothing to do with an organized group of followers of Satanism. Now, before I get into this next bit, I'd like to insert my own personal disclaimer here. I'm extremely open-minded. There are very few things that I will discount at the outset without proof either way because I'm not arrogant enough to believe that I know or understand everything that exists within the universe. But this isn't a paranormal podcast. This is a true crime podcast, with true being the operative word. So, just because I may state that I think the involvement of certain aspects of this case was a little ridiculous, doesn't mean I'm discounting the possibility that such things exist. I'm just saying... I don't think they belong in a court of law. I didn't mention the witness that the state called during the pre-sentencing until now, as it's more relevant to this part of the discussion. The prosecution called a man called Kurbus Jonker to the stand, who is also known as Donker Jonker. For information about Jonker, I relied heavily on an article published in the Star newspaper by Jacques Rousseau. For clarity, it was very much an opinion piece, but those opinions are certainly supported by fact in many places. Kurbus Jonker is occasionally called to testify in cases where a reference to the occult has been made. Now, by its very definition, the word occult means involving or relating to mystical, supernatural or magical powers, practices or phenomena. So, essentially related to things which could be real, or they could be figments of a person's imagination. So, how does that have any bearing on a crime? Essentially, it shouldn't, because there is no occult legal defense. No court of law would allow you to have a defense which claims that someone cast a spell on you which caused you to kill someone, or rob them, or commit any other crime. So how can there be an expert for something which hasn't been proven to exist, nor does it have any legal bearing on the prosecution or defense of a case? But still, we paid an expert to appear to testify to the possibility of the existence of something that we aren't sure exists. Okay. Kurbus Jonker has done a lot of research and had many years' experience in the field of what are labelled occult-related crimes. I have no doubt that there is some psychological aspect to crimes like this that would be highly beneficial to understand from a profiling perspective. But the fact remains that it has no impact on the guilt or innocence of a perpetrator, nor in the case of a pre-sentencing hearing could it be considered an aggravating factor? Junker's testimony in the Haramsa case boiled down to the fact that Monet seemed to be interested in Satanism, but could only be described as a dabbler. Kurbus Junker's experience in this field started in the 1980s, at the height of Satanic panic in South Africa, and indeed the world. 
The board game Dungeons & Dragons was one of the main sparks behind this at the time, and a 1997 thesis by psychologist Gavin Ivey attributed the huge surge of panic in South Africa in particular to a large population of Christian fundamentalists. I think maybe this is part of it, but I also think that another part of it is that we have our own African traditions that many of us don't understand and therefore fear. South Africa was hit so hard by the public interest in Satanism that we even had a department in the SAPS specifically dedicated to occult crimes. Corbus Jonker headed up this unit, which was created in 1992. The unit was tasked with investigating cases which had links to anything outside what are considered societal norms. According to their now-defunct webpage, this includes, quote, witchcraft, satanism, mysticism, magic, esotericism, and the like. Included in the scope of occult-related crimes are ritual muti-slash-medicine murders, witch-purging, witchcraft-related violence, and sect-related practices that pose a threat to the safety and security of the Republic of South Africa and or its inhabitants, end quote. The anti-occult unit was disbanded in 2006, and while I can see some value in having people specially trained in things like muti murders and cults, I don't know that we ever needed an entire unit for it. I also find some of the warning signs they had on their websites a bit dangerous. Basically, it was a list of things that could tell you if your child is part of a satanic cult. These included things like the child experiencing sudden gender confusion, the child displaying cruelty towards animals, the child viewing a disproportionate number of videotapes and DVDs of horror movies or heavy metal music. The child is engaged in illegal drug use and or sexual activity, depression. The child starts to wear pale makeup and or dyes hair black and draping the hair across the left eye. There is a disclaimer above the list which states that these factors should be viewed in conjunction with other behaviours and in isolation do not mean that your child is a practicing Satanist. It's just dangerous, though, in my opinion, to list these things that are most likely just personal choices or signs of deeper disturbance, and label them signs that your child is a Satanist. Well, to be fair, the list is actually called Warning Signs of Possible Occult-Related Discourse but almost every single point refers to Satan or Satanism. So if we were wondering how the word occult became synonymous with the word Satanism in South Africa, this is one of the places it happened. This all might not have much meaning to anyone who hasn't been caught up in any of this, but the source of this type of panic still happens every single day under different guises. A small example of this is a message circulated around WhatsApp groups about a giant storm that is going to hit with 
Hurricane speed winds, blah, blah, blah. You know the one I mean. It comes around every year. The same message, word for word. Yet people still share it. And they still freak out. And they still leave work early and block up the roads. And why? Because they were afraid. And they didn't take the time to educate themselves. Fake storm panic. Satanic panic. It's all the same. Monet Haramsa killed Jacques Pretorius. He killed him for many reasons, but none of them were supernatural. Monet's parents were under fire in this case. They were blamed for not knowing what was happening under their own roof. After his mom admitted that she'd had suspicions about his behaviour, they were blamed for not doing something about it. Franco Fisser stated that Despite their suspicions about Monet, they were still absolutely shocked when he committed murder, and I have no doubt they were. I think that the environment created by his parents certainly allocates some responsibility to them for what Monet became, but they also raised another child, Monet's younger brother, and he is, by all appearances, living a healthy life with a wife, child, and gainful employment. It's the old nature versus nurture argument. On the 21st of August 2018, just three days after their son had committed murder, Monet's parents released a statement through their lawyer. It read as follows. Quote, Firstly, we want to extend our heartfelt sympathy to the Pretorius family. We realize your precious possession has been taken away by our child's deed. We are terribly sorry and wish that the circumstances weren't so and that we could change them. Monet is very small and scrawny for his age. Until Monday morning, we never thought he was capable of such a thing. We are a very solid family and our children are raised strictly but with a lot of love. Because of Monet's physical build, he was often belittled during his formative years. Where we could, we stood up for him and spoke to the bullies involved, but also accepted it as part of life. During a visit with Monet on Tuesday, we saw that we never realized the true impact that the physical and emotional abuse had on him. He explained to us that he felt so powerless and worthless that he wanted to make a stand. He went to school intending to give them which was never directed at a specific person, a fright and to hurt them, but he never intended to kill anyone. He wanted to release built-up frustration and his feeling of powerlessness. He wanted to be someone. Monet was a very small baby at birth, and through life we knew him as someone quiet who knew his place. To our regret, it looks as though Monet experimented with Satanism, and that, in his psyche, it offered him a measure of protection. It was as though he could escape into this idea, that he would experience certain powers which would then offer him a protection mechanism. His words to us were, When I put on the mask, everything became dead quiet, and my body moved. I wanted to stop. 
but couldn't. He also mentioned that the matric final exams had put a lot of pressure on him. Although he never failed a grade, he was terribly afraid that he would. We suspect a combination of stress, bad self-esteem, wrong influences and an absolute feeling of powerlessness led our child to this terrible deed. During our visits in the cells, Monet was terribly confused and only realised on Tuesday that someone had died. He remembered basically nothing about the incident. Two lives have been destroyed by this unfathomable incident. We appeal to all parents to have deep conversations with their children to make sure everything is all right. One is inclined to attribute certain personalities to physical development, but that isn't always the case. End quote. So there's a few things I'd like to address here. I do believe that this was originally written in Afrikaans and then translated, so it's possible that that's the reason for the odd use of the word possession to describe the deceased son of a grieving family. It also bothers me that, although at this time the reports of violence at home were not public knowledge, his parents see fit to refer to the bullying he experienced as some sort of external impetus for his actions. They state that he had been confused and only realised the Tuesday after the incident that he'd actually killed someone. I'm not calling his parents liars, but I find this very difficult to believe. He told witnesses at the scene that he'd killed three people. He was arrested, and surely he would have been told why. He was questioned directly afterwards. I highly doubt that no one mentioned that Jacques had died. I can't say why they felt it necessary to make the statement. Maybe they thought it would stop the media hammering at their door. But I don't think it was necessary, and I don't think it was fair to Jacques' family or the surviving victims. But that's just my opinion. During the pre-sentencing hearing, Lisa also spoke to a journalist outside the courthouse. She said that Monet is well-liked in prison, and everyone goes to him for advice. She pointed out that Monet had given some of his clothing to a fellow inmate to wear to court. She says that Monet is a good person, who made a mistake. Machil Haramsa does not face the camera at this time. He turns his back on the journalist and talks to his wife, then quite suddenly puts his hand on her arm and leads her away. So that's a whole lot about Monet Haramsa, and unfortunately not very much about Jacques Pretorius. At his funeral, a paragraph was printed in the program that read, quote, Jacques, in the sixteen years, seven months, and three days, that you as a son, brother, cousin, and friend had been part of our lives, we experienced joy and grief. Jacques, you were taken from us so suddenly. It hurts very much, but we know that God is holding you safely in his arms. End quote. Stefan Boas recovered from his physical wounds and is married and living in Johannesburg. Unfortunately, there's no information available about the progress of Sam Manamela 
and Joseph Kordisang, and I really feel that they were the forgotten victims in this case. Maybe they weren't school children, but they were still victims. And honestly, if it hadn't been for their brave actions, many more lives may have been lost that day. It is because we have so little information about the victims that I wanted to give you insights into a few other aspects of the case, like the occult claims, the Slipknot connection, and the Columbine parallels. Maybe that information will reach just one set of the right ears, and the parent will figure out that their child needs help before it's too late. And then maybe we won't have to do another podcast episode about victims we don't know. Monet Haramsa is a bit of an enigma. He's now 29 years old, and in a recent photo I saw of him, he doesn't appear to have aged a day. There is every possibility that he may be released any day now, if he hasn't already been by the time this episode airs. The question is, has his mental progression been greater than his physical progression? Frank Ufissa the state psychologist, says that his concern is Monet's capability to manipulate and the fact that he's been rubbing shoulders with hardened criminals for the last 11 years. What has he learned that he didn't know when he went in? I can only hope that when he is released that there'll be a plan for him that involves him going into a stable environment where his past is acknowledged and faced head-on and not brushed under the carpet and excused with, he made a mistake. I'm sure that the Krugersdorp community has changed a lot since Monet has been away. But often the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I can only wonder how the community will feel about having Monet back within their bosom, if that is where he chooses to go. For Jacques Petrius, there'll never be another homecoming. His mother cannot go and visit her child, except maybe at his grave. And while I'm sure the Haramsa family understands this, I don't think that they, or any of us, who've never experienced the loss of a child, will ever truly understand what a dull becker has lived with for 11 years. And that, for me, is the true sadness of this case. Once again, the sensation of the killer, his methods, his madness, and all the ridiculousness that was created around it, eclipsed the victim. A 16-year-old child who died for no reason. Thank you for listening to episode 13, The Samurai Killer. If you enjoyed this episode, Please remember to subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the app you're using to listen. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. True Crime South Africa releases full episodes every second Friday and mini-sodes on the Fridays in between. As always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.